Brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. We've been in this uh, series uh, over Ordinary Time, which has taken us from uh, somewhere in the beginning of September, I think, we started, maybe end of July, maybe it was sometime in August, anyway, talking about beginnings and endings, uh, as Matt talked about earlier, and uh, this is the second sermon we're going to preach on endings, on getting the end of our story right so that we can live now uh, headed in the right direction, uh, so to speak. And uh, the, the readings that we uh, have read today um, might be a little, I don't know if you guys, what you guys experienced as we read some of these, but I experience discomfort when I hear passages like this, when I hear about God coming to judge, when I hear that the day of the Lord is going to burn like a furnace, I think, wow, what is that all about? And what does that have to do with Jesus, who seems to reveal something else about God? Does anybody else have this problem, or is this just me? This dichotomy that we sort of feel between, wow, what does judgment and wrath have to do with the Jesus who forgives sins and takes the, you know, the violence of the world upon himself? How do these things line up? I want to proclaim a word of good news about that uh, to us today, if I can. Uh, and so we want to talk about, um, la- last week we talked you know, about how the, um, the world, it, 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 like there's alternative myths about where the world is going and what's going to happen and what the good news is about the future. One of those alternative myths is that the world is just getting better and better. And things are getting, things are, you know, technology and science is just going to take us right into the future. And we're going to be awesome. It's going to be great. Right? It's a kind of this technological optimism that, of course, you know, World War I hit <laughs> right after that started happening. And, we, and, and that was dashed on the rocks of... Uh, of history, um, and so, but the other alternative myth is not that we're is is that we're destined to kind of fly away. Uh, we're going to flee from our bodies. We're going to flee from this wicked world, and and kind of fly away and be at bliss in heaven, which is a non-physical place. And so, that's not our story either as Christians. Our story is about the resurrection of the dead and the renewal of all things. God's going to restore and renew the whole cosmos, amen. And He's going to make all the sad things come untrue as uh, Samwise Gamgee said to Gandalf. We talked about that last week. So this week we want to talk a little bit about the second coming of Christ and specifically this thing that we confess in the Apostles' Creed where we say that Jesus Christ, you know, we, we confess his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and then what do we say? He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We say that every week. We'll say, it, we'll say it today. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And during the communion liturgy, uh, we'll, I'll, I'll say, uh, you know, let's proclaim the mystery of our faith. And we'll all say together, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and then what? Christ will come again. So this is part of what we confess, is that Christ will come again, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. So what are we talking about here? How does the personal presence of Jesus fit into this grand scope of God renewing all things, specifically if Jesus is coming as a judge? What in the world is this all about? We have a couple images, I think, that we oftentimes think of when we think of this event. Ryan, if you want to put those up on the screen. How many of you guys have seen this one? This is kind of how we think about the coming of Jesus or the second coming. Like, Jesus is not, he stands at the door and knocks, and he says, let me in. And from inside the door, we say, why? And he says, so I can save you. And inside the door is, from what? And then Jesus says, from what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. Right? So in this, in this scenario, God is both the problem and the solution, right? He's both the problem and the solution. Or how about this one? Have you guys ever seen this one? This is the next one. Jesus is coming. Look busy. 
where he's, he's, like, he's, like a, he's like a boss that's coming around and you're supposed to like, oh, I, I was on Facebook and I got a quick, like, looked like I was doing some work or do, doing something important for Jesus. Anybody, anybody resonate with this? This is kind of how I felt about the second coming growing up. I grew up a Christian and, uh, you know, an evangelical Christian that believed in the second coming. It was a little bit more like we went through all that 88 reasons Jesus will return in 1988. Anybody old enough to remember that stuff? That's a real booklet. You can actually find probably still copies of it. Um, and, you know, our church kind of went through a kerfuffle about that. People sort of freaked out in 1988. I guess I would have been 13 years old. So for me, I was like, hmm. And I, I noticed, I was, I was like, I, you know, it probably won't happen. But I was 13, and so I thought, man, that sure would be inconvenient if he came back in 1988, right? Because I was like, I just got some, I got some stuff I want to do. Like, I want to be an adult for a couple seconds, you know? Like, I want to, I I, you know, I want to experience things a little bit more. And so it felt like, at best kind of an inconvenience that Jesus would come back, right? Because then what? Like an endless church service? I mean, it just didn't sound like good news to me. I was like, I'm not sure what we're going to be doing after he comes back. Um, so I knew I was supposed to be excited for it, you know, like we can't wait till you, for you to come back, you know, but, but, but it also, so it felt like a, an inconvenience, but it also felt a little ominous and scary to me because I had in the back of my mind this image of, you know, Jesus the judge. I had an image of Jesus is going to come back, and will I have done enough? Like, what's he going to find in my life? Have I been good enough? Did I do the right things? I felt sure that Jesus was going to come back, and if not be angry with me, at least be sort of slightly disappointed, right? Sort of give me a sigh and a little bit of a, well, you tried. Yeah, a big sigh like that, Melody. Um, And I, I remember one, so this this was kind of how I felt about the, the second coming. I remember one, uh, and I would, always, I would always feel this way after coming home from Bible camp because I would get so excited about Jesus at Bible camp. Anybody resonate with that? I would get so excited. I remember, I think I was probably fourth or fifth grade. It was one of the last years I went to Bible camp. And, uh, I, you know, we drove four hours. I grew up in southern Minnesota in Lake Beauty Bible camp. It was four-hour drive north. And so we were going into northern Minnesota, and uh, we drove the four hours up there, and it was a week-long thing. It was like five, five and a half days of singing songs every morning. You go to chapel, you hear a great speaker, gets you all fired up about Jesus. And it was all these Christian kids around me who were fired up about Jesus, and we'd sing these songs. And I remember Friday afternoon, like, knowing my parents were coming to pick me up, and I felt so sure. I was so pumped to share Jesus with my friends. Finally, I'm going to get up the nerve to share Jesus with my friends. I was so excited for it. And then my parents picked me up, and then it's a long car drive, you know, four hours in the car after a week of, like, not eating very well, not sleeping very well. So I was pretty tired, and I remember I just got home, and I just, I, I felt the passion sort of leaking out of me, you know, along the drive. I was trying to keep it in. I'm like, no, 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 remember how passionate you were, like, but I just felt it all leaking out. By the time I got home, I, I played a video game, I took a nap, and I went to school the next day, and nothing changed. Nothing changed. My passion, it wasn't enough to kind of get me over the hump of kind of doing the thing that I felt like Jesus wanted me to do. And I remember feeling this shame and this guilt about that. Man, what is wrong with me that I can't get excited to share Jesus with my friends? I carried around a lot of shame about that. Why couldn't I stay pumped up about Jesus? And I felt sure that this second coming thing, where Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, I was sure that that meant for me that he was going to point that out about me. You know, you could have been more passionate. I know. I felt sure that's what it was going to mean for me. 
And so I didn't look forward to it, right? That wasn't, didn't seem like good news to me because it was going to reveal all this shame. Maybe you guys can relate. Maybe it doesn't feel like good news when we confess in the creed, Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. The passage we read from Malachi feels like a threat, doesn't it? Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the wicked and the evildoers, all the arrogant and evildoers will be like stubble because it's going to burn like a furnace. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that we, that we heard as well that the true nature of everyone's work is going to be revealed by fire and that some of us, our work is going to burn up. It's going to be revealed to be something that wasn't worth anything and we're going to suffer loss, although we'll be saved, right? So it sounds like we're talking about a vengeful, wrathful deity bent on throwing as many people into hell as he can. But here's our good news today. Sorry, that was all bad news. That was the preface. Right? You guys are like, where is this going? <laughs> is there an exit easy for me? Yeah. But here's our good news for today. This, it's this, and we'll talk about this. Jesus Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, and that will be the best thing that ever happens to us. When God renews the whole cosmos and makes everything sad come untrue, Jesus himself will be personally present as the center and the focus of new creation. He comes to save, not to destroy. And he saves us by his judgment, because his judgment is love. That's our good news. So uh, we'll talk, we can talk more about, we have a Tuesday night class that we do online that if you're interested in, we talk way more about the background of a lot of this stuff. We do a lot more teaching there. Here's just about, as much as possible, proclamation, proclaiming good news. So there's a lot of background teaching we're going to do in that class. So if anything I say in this, I, I need to give just a little bit of background as to why, like what the second coming is, okay? If anything I say here is confusing to you, talk to me afterwards or come to class on Tuesday, okay? So here's the deal. 50 days after Jesus' resurrection from the dead in a body, right? He ascends to heaven. Now, a lot of us have an idea that that means he floated up into space, but that's not what happened, okay? Because what would that mean? Jesus is in outer space? He's not in outer space, right? He went to heaven, right? And so what we need here is a new cosmology. Remember Matt talked about cosmologies? It's, it's how we think about the nature of the universe. And so heaven and earth are God's space and our space. God's space and our space. And so they, inter, they interlock and overlap in many mysterious ways, uh, ways that we don't quite understand. But, um, but, but they're not sort of two parts of the same world. So we can't... There's no, you can't go for a million miles and find God. You can't find heaven. That's not where it is, right? And so science fiction actually helps us here, where how many of you guys have read the Narnia books? C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia series. This helps us, right? Narnia is not within our world. It's a different world, and it overlaps with our world, like in these mysterious ways, right? You can go through a wardrobe, and you're in Narnia. That's kind of like heaven and earth, Okay. So heaven and earth, so what happened when Jesus ascends to heaven is he went, he's, he went with his physical resurrected body into, into God's space. So the good news, this might freak some of you out, is there is a human being ruling the universe from heaven with a human body in heaven. Jesus is a human being in heaven. Jesus will always be a human being. Okay, so he's in heaven. He currently reigns and rules the whole universe from heaven. He is the, the, the world's true ruler, the true king of the whole universe. And one day, he will, he's present with us in some ways, 
but he's also in heaven away from us. But one day he will be with us. One day he will appear. One day, as we said last week, heaven and earth are going to get married, and the overlap is going to be complete and we'll be completely transparent. Heaven and earth will be completely transparent with one another. And God will be dwelling with us. Okay? So that's what we mean by the second coming, is that Jesus will come and be personally present to us in a new way. And that's our future. Our future isn't Jesus went to heaven and we're going to follow him someday. Our future is Jesus went to heaven and he's ruling and reigning as the, Lord's true, as the world's true king. And he will come back to make that rule complete in the new heavens and the new earth. That's our future, okay? So Christ is here. We say this all the time, right? God is present and at work. He is here, yes, through the Spirit. He's here through Scripture. He's here through the sacraments. We're going to come to this table to encounter the Lord, yes, but He's also not here. He's also in heaven. He's in God's space. And so the return of Christ is going to be like meeting someone that you've only known online, face-to-face. Does that make sense? I've had several friends, back when Twitter wasn't such a dumpster fire, um, when it was like an interesting way to get to know people and find, find people online. I don't know. Maybe you guys never were part of that, that Twitter. That was a nice Twitter. It was a good Twitter. Uh, but back, back then, I, I, I got to know several people online where we would interact about ideas and things that we were thinking about and talking about, right? And so I really actually got to know them. But I remember then I would go to conferences and I would meet these people and I'd, I'd be like, oh, it's Jeff. It's my friend Jeff. I know Jeff, right? It wasn't that I wasn't present with Jeff. Like, we, we knew things about each other's families. I knew a little bit about how he thought. But now I see Jeff in the face, face to face, in the flesh, right? And so now there's full communication possible. I can see his tone of voice. I can, I can get a hug from him. Does that make sense? That's kind of what the second coming of Christ is going to be like for us. He'll be present to us in a new way. And the result will be the complete transformation of our lives. First John 3 talks about this. He says, like, uh, uh, he writes to uh, his hearers, he says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we will see him as, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When Christ appears, we shall be like him. So there's going to be this transformation that takes place, the resurrection of the dead. Christ will return. And here's the crux of it. The nature of that transformation will come through what the Bible calls judgment. That's how it'll happen. The early church presented Jesus as a judge, and Christians have always believed that there's going to be a judgment. Um, And what that means is that the creator God is going to set the world right once and for all. That's what judgment means. God's going to set the world right once and for all. We think of judgment as negative, don't we? Almost predominantly. Don't be so judgy, right? Only God can judge me as St. Tupac said, Um, right? So uh, we've got this negative view of judgment, but throughout the Bible, judgment is celebrated. It's celebrated. Malachi 4 that we read wasn't a threat. It was a celebration that God was going to set things right. Psalm 98 that we read is like, wow, look at all this crazy stuff happening. The, the, The trees are clapping their hands and everything's singing for joy. Why? Because God comes to judge the earth. He's gonna set things right. Judgment is a cause for rejoicing in the Bible. And, and, and you can see why. In a world of systematic injustice, a world of bullying, a world of violence, arrogance, oppression, 
the thought that there is one day going to be a time when a true judge comes to say no is, a, is good news, isn't it? It's good news that the bullies are going to get knocked off their thrones. That's what, the, that's what the Bible celebrates. Yeah, they're in power now. Yeah, they're oppressing us now. But one day, God is going to make all things right. It won't happen forever. That's the good news of judgment. Um, and so God has to be a God of judgment in a world of exploitation. You can't just brush it under the rug. You can't just say, well, just I know that sucked, but get over it. No, there has to be a reckoning, doesn't there? There has to be a reckoning for these things. In the New Testament, judgment is always spoken of as good news. And part of that is because the person doing the judging is Jesus. Ah, it's Jesus. It's not some vengeful tyrant. It's Jesus. We know him. He's the man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. He's been tempted in every way, just like we have. That's the one who's going to be doing the judging. Jesus, who loved sinners and died for them. This Messiah, this King, who took the world's judgment upon himself on the cross. That's who we're entrusting to judge rightly. It's Jesus. And so part of the good news of judgment is that Jesus is doing the judging. We trust him to discriminate. That's what judgment means. To tell the difference between one thing and another. To see clearly what is good and what is evil. And to separate those things. Jesus Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. And that will be the best thing that ever happens to us. When God renews the whole cosmos and makes everything sad come untrue, Jesus himself will be personally present as the center and focus of new creation. He comes to save, not to destroy, and he saves us by his judgment because his judgment is love. So in the text we read from John 3, uh, the gospel writer John writes this. He says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So notice something here in this text. God doesn't come to judge, right? God didn't send his Son to condemn. I should make a difference between those two words, condemning and judging. We think of them as the same thing, and sometimes they're translated that way, but that's, they're not the exact same thing. God doesn't come to condemn, but it says in the passage, in the next verse, Whoever does not believe stands condemned. You guys catch that? Isn't that interesting? So, Jesus didn't come to condemn, and yet there are people condemned. They're standing, standing condemned. Who's doing the condemning if God's not doing it? Yeah. Well, listen to the next part. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So who's doing the condemning? To quote Radiohead, you do it to yourself. You do it to yourself if when the light comes in, you say, nah, I'd rather not. I'd rather stay in darkness. The Gospel of John portrays Jesus as the light of the world, this same light that's going to shine on everyone, but there's different ways of responding to the light. That's what judgment is. 
different ways of responding to the light. Some gladly welcome it, and others run away. And so walking in the light doesn't mean that we're performing really well morally. It doesn't mean I'm doing all the right things. Walking in the light just means I'm willing to be known for who I am, warts and all. I'm willing to trust that what's bad about me, I won't be condemned for. Because I'm willing to trust that this Jesus who's doing the judging has taken all the judgment. Does that make sense? That's walking in the light. Walking in the light is I'm willing to be seen for who I really am. I won't hide anymore. And that's what it means for Jesus to bring judgment. It's not that he's gracious towards some and harsh and demanding towards others. No, he's full of grace and truth, right? It's just that grace itself, when it comes to us, it does this work of dividing. Grace itself, when it, when it comes to us, does its own work of dividing. And this is such a strong theme in ancient Christianity that a lot of the early Christian teachers suggested uh, that heaven and hell might be the same place. Do you guys know this? Heaven and hell might be the same place. There's a, uh, somebody named Isaac the Syrian, who was a 7th century monk and preacher, who said this, everybody is ultimately brought into the presence of divine love. But the power of love works in two ways. It is a joy to some, but a torment to others. School teachers experience this, right? It's the same classroom, same curriculum, same experience, yet some are delighted to be there. They're learning a ton. Others are bored out of their minds. What's the difference? The teacher didn't decide to be good to some and bad for others, right? The difference is in the person experiencing the classroom. Isaac the Syrian imagines the world to come not as two different places where two different gods do two different things or where one god does two different things to people. He imagines the world to come as two different ways of responding to the love of God that's just filling everything now. I mentioned Narnia earlier. There's a great illustration of this in the, at the end of the, the Magician's Nephew. How many of you guys have ever read that one? That's like the prequel to the Narnia series. Uh, it's one of the best, I think. It's a, it's a wonderful book. Um, and so at the end, there are two children that are kind of the main characters, Diggory and Polly. And they have come into Narnia with their uncle Andrew, because their uncle Andrew is trying to, he's not a good person in the book. So he's, he's kind of uh, self-centered. He's arrogant. He's trying to exploit, uh, he, he's come into Narnia through some magic dust that he found, and he's trying to exploit this new world and become powerful and prestigious. This is Uncle Andrew. And uh, his nephew and niece come with him, Diggory and Polly, and um, they actually stumble upon the creation of Narnia in the story. And uh, the way that Narnia is created is Aslan, the great lion, who's the Christ figure of the, of the Narnia series, he sings Narnia into existence. And so, obviously, this is something that none, none of these people have ever experienced. They're used to London, you know, in the 40s. And so they, they come into this experience. Diggory and Polly are like, wow, a lion is singing, right? That's different, right? That's new. Uh, and their response is fascination and wonder. And eventually, they move toward Aslan because Diggory's mother is very sick, and he thinks maybe, maybe this lion can help my mother. And so they start to move toward Aslan. But Uncle Andrew, he knows that lions don't sing. And so he convinces himself that he's not hearing singing. 
And he does this every time he hears the singing, he thinks that can't be singing, because I know that lions don't sing. Lions are dangerous, they're fierce creatures. So eventually what Andrew hears is growling. And it makes him very afraid. And so, of course, Narnia is filled with talking beasts, and so part of what Aslan is creating is these talking animals. And all the talking animals are, they're, you know, they're coming alive, and they have this new power of speech, and they're talking to each other and finding out what each other is. And these animals become interested in Uncle Andrew, right? Because he's, he's back behind, hiding behind a tree. And they're like, what's that? Like, this is amazing. And so they all start running towards him, like laughing and calling it, like, you know, Tally-ho and British things. And so he, like, they all start running towards him. And Uncle Andrew, of course, though he can't hear them asking questions because he knows that animals don't talk. So that can't be what he's hearing. Instead, he hears you know, brayings and gruntings and growlings and roarings and, and howlings. And he hears all these animal noises and he's terrified. He runs away. And eventually, Uncle Andrew um, is so terrified that he... That he can't even speak anymore. You know, the animals are just trying to, you know, figure out who he is. But his experience of this is completely different from the children's. Completely different. And it ends with this, where, you know, Diggory confesses to Aslan that he stole something. This is Diggory coming into the light. Diggory wasn't perfect. He just said, sorry, I stole something. But he trusts Aslan to do what's right. Uncle Andrew can't trust Aslan to do what's right because he can't even conceive that Aslan is a <laughs> talking lion, right? So his experience is completely different. And right at the end, um, Uncle Andrew is just, he, he's more and more terrified. He can't even speak anymore. And Polly says, Aslan, isn't there something you could say to him to unfrighten him? Like, I, he's broken, it seems like. Could, could, you, could you say something to him? And Aslan says this, it's interesting. No, I can't say anything to this old sinner. And I cannot comfort him either. He has made himself unable to hear my voice. If I spoke to him, he would hear only growlings and roarings. Oh, Adam's sons, how cleverly you defend yourselves against all that might do you good. How cleverly you defend yourselves against all that might do you good. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But some people love darkness more than light. This is the nature of the judgment of Christ. Jesus Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. And that will be the best thing that ever happens to us. Because see, for us, the judgment that Christ brings is not just a division between two kinds of people. When Christ's light shines into our lives, it creates division within ourselves. None of us is entirely good or entirely bad. We're all a mixture. The bad grows up in our lives like weeds among the wheat, and the two are so closely entwined with each other that in this life, it's really hard to figure out which is which. Jesus talked about this in, the, in Matthew 13, the parable of the weeds and the wheat. They just grow up together. It's hard to figure out which is which. And isn't this true of our lives? Sometimes our virtues, the virtues we're most proud of, are the things that have, un, that have caused untold collateral damage. We only find out years later. And sometimes our worst mistakes turn out to produce good fruit. We can't tell. We don't know. Our lives are not transparent to ourselves. We can't easily tell where the good ends and the bad begins. So judgment then is a comfort. It's a comfort to know that someone will one day come and lovingly separate the good from the bad in our lives. 
to say this, not this. That's what the judgment of Christ means for us as well. That someone will come and separate those things from each other. So the, the confession that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead is not an expression of terror or doom. It should not evoke fear in us. It's part of the good news of the gospel. It's a joy to know that someone who understands all the complexities and the ambiguities of our lives is going to come and sort it all out lovingly for us because we can't do it ourselves. We can't do it ourselves. It's a joy to know that this one who is full of grace and truth, the only one truly competent to judge, will come and do it. And so we can welcome this work into our lives because he comes to save, not to destroy, and he saves us by his judgment. Because what's happening to us is not that we're, we talked about this uh, when we talked about the fall and the curse. What's happening to us is not that God is punishing us for wrongdoing. What's happening to us is that we're slowly being poisoned by the natural consequences of what we've drunk. And so God's judgment in our lives is like a surgeon taking out the cancer, performing surgery, saving our lives by taking out the thing that's killing us. That's God's judgment in our lives, the judgment that Jesus Christ will bring. And that's our good news for today. Jesus Christ is going to come to judge the living and the dead. That will be the best thing that ever happens to us. Christ will be present in God's new creation, and he'll be present as judge, and he comes to save us by his judgment, and his judgment is love. So we live today between the ascension and the appearing of Christ. We're joined to Christ by the Spirit, but we await his final coming and his coming as judge. And we can look forward to him coming, to judge the, he- to judge the heaven, or sorry, to judge the living and the dead. We can look forward to him coming because he is the world's true Lord and we can trust him to do what is right, to do what is gracious. Amen? So let's respond to this good news today. Um, we get the privilege of living under the lordship of Christ today. Uh, this isn't just something we look forward to. It's something that can be welcomed in our lives today. So let's respond to the good news uh, in a couple ways. Number one, maybe today you need to welcome the loving judgment of Jesus into your life today. Maybe there's something going on in you that you have felt the temptation to hide from Jesus. Not that he doesn't know about it already, but you've thought, I don't want to really talk to God about this. I want to sort this out myself so I can present God with a nice, clean picture. I don't want to bring him my mess. Maybe if that's you today, bring him your mess today. Say, Lord, I need your judgment. I need you to help me sort this out. I don't know what's going on here. I trust you to help me sort this out. Maybe you're frustrated about how easy it is for you to slip back into that old sin. Maybe you're frustrated at how disinterested you are in prayer. For me, one of the things that's really hard for me is how how quickly I become frustrated and hard toward my kids when I can't help them in the way that I think I should be able to help them. And instead of confessing that, wow, that brings me some shame, I cover it with anger. And I create distance between me and my kids. That's something for me that feels like, wow, I need to welcome God's judgment into my life. Because his judgment is love. So that's one way you can respond. Submit those things to Jesus' loving judgment, inviting him to do the beautiful work of separating good from the bad, trusting Jesus to do his surgery well. 
The second thing that you might want to do to respond to this is to entrust situations to the judgment of Jesus, the loving judgment of Jesus. Maybe there's a situation of injustice. Maybe there's a situation of oppression that bothers you. Who does your heart hurt for when you see them get hurt and you can't do anything about it? What are you angry about? Those are things we can bring to Jesus. For me, it's, uh, for some reason, uh, it's the systemic, when the powerful systemically oppress the poor and just keep grinding. So they pass a $1.5 trillion tax cut for corporations, and then they start saying, well, we might have to cut Medicaid and Medicare. That really bothers me. I get really angry about that. That's me. That's a situation for me that I need to entrust to the Lord's loving judgment. Not that we can't do things about it now. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if that's all we have is like we're going to do something about this, we end up taking on the responsibility that we're not meant to have. And so we can express what we want to God. We can express how we feel to God. We can even make some requests. A lot of the Psalms are the psalmist making requests to the Lord. You notice that? Here, I have some ideas about what to do with my enemies, Lord. But the thing about the psalmist is that they're submitting it to the desk of the Lord. They're saying, you take care. I have some requests. I have some things I'd like to see happen, but you take care of this. I trust you to do what's right. I trust you to bring judgment in a way that you see fit. So today, let's respond uh, in those two ways. Let's tell God how we feel. Let's tell God what we want. Let's entrust judgment to him by praying this prayer that's in our booklet. Jesus, thank you that you will come again to save the world by judging the living and the dead. Today, in anticipation of that great day, I entrust and then name it to your loving judgment, whether it's something in you or a situation that frustrates or angers you. Let's pray this together.